Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 30th, 2012, and my guest is Josiah Ober, professor of classics and political science at Stanford University. Josh, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks very much, Russ. Delighted to be with you. Our topic for today is the economy of ancient Greece and your recent paper on the topic titled Wealthy Hellas. You say in that paper that ancient Greece has always been perceived as very poor. Why was that the standard view? Well, I think there are really two reasons. Um, the uh, first reason, and the one that's most obvious if we think about it from the point of view of classical studies, uh, is that the Greeks themselves described themselves as poor. So if we read in a couple of classic passages by Herodotus or various other places in the Greek tradition, the Greeks are constantly describing themselves when they compare themselves to the um, great empires of the Middle East um, as uh, in a condition of poverty. The problem is, is of course, they're comparing themselves not against the ordinary people of these great empires, but against the kings and the courts uh, of these great empires. So it's certainly true that compared to, say, um, Croesus of Lydia or Darius of Persia, um, any uh, Greek was indeed relatively poor. But compared to an ordinary individual, a subject of Croesus of Lydia or Darius of Persia, the ordinary Greek was actually quite wealthy. So I think it's, uh, for us, the relevant measure um, is trying to ask ourselves what was the um, ordinary individual, uh, what, what was the conditions of their lives. The other uh, way reason that I think that Greece um, uh, is considered poor is that the Greeks were poor when we compare them to the conditions of modernity. So that there's no ancient, no ancient, no pre-modern society, no society before the 19th century that looks anything like poor, uh, anything but poor, um, when we compare it to um, the most advanced uh, states of the uh, 19th and 20th century. But once again, I think that's the wrong level. That's the wrong level of comparison. Uh, we really need to be asking ourselves how well do the Greeks do compared to other pre-modern societies, not how well do they do compared to the most advanced societies of the last 200 years. Why does it matter? Uh, it's an interesting historical puzzle, perhaps. Uh, but and and it's important to say that this view of Greece that you've just described, which is this self-described poverty, has been the common view, you, you suggest, of the historical record, and, and you're challenging it in this paper. Why is it important? Yeah, I think the main reason, for me anyway, that it's important uh, is because we would like to know, at least I'd like to know, as a um, political theorist, uh, how well highly centralized uh, imperial societies do um, against uh, decentralized, um, dispersed authority societies. So if we look at the really well-known societies of the ancient world, they tend to be um, very highly centralized, ancient Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Lydia, and so on. So all centered around a king and a court, a palace structure. Uh, the Greek world provides the most important single counterexample of a highly dispersed uh, society, that is, with no central um, uh, palace structure, um, with uh, literally hundreds of independent states, um, each with their own uh, independent governments. So the question we have before us is, can a dispersed authority system like the world of the Greek city-states do relatively well economically, or was that kind of society doomed to poverty compared to highly centralized societies? Now, of course, those, and, highly, those highly centralized societies left uh, 
monuments like like the pyramids, the tombs that clearly tell Absolutely. us a, a lot about the leader, but not very much about the average person. So they can be right. misleading so for the other you, reason. What you get is, yeah, a lot of constant, you know, there is a surplus, um, a small surplus that could be taken from these agricultural societies. Uh, and that's concentrated in a very few hands um, uh, in these centralized uh, systems. But, you know, if overall we were to say that the economy of the most centralized ancient societies was far and away superior to the economy of um, the most advanced of the ancient dispersed societies, then we'd have something that I think would be, you know, worth thinking about in terms of how economics works generally. But if it's not the case, if it turns out that a dispersed society like that of the uh, ancient Greeks um, actually performs very well, once again, we have something to, to think about in terms of general economics. Let's talk Digress for a minute about uh, Greek political system and, and the role of power in that system. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know a lot about it. We certainly romanticize Greece as this great democracy, but it, sure. it wasn't much like uh, the United States. What was it like? Maybe it wasn't like anything except Greece. So tell us how authority and power work there and, and, uh, and why it's relevant. Yeah, well, just uh, briefly, um, in the uh, period we're concerned with, that's, say, between about 600 and 300 uh, BC, uh, the Greek world is divided up into roughly a thousand different individual states, Um, city-states, which ranged from the really big ones like Athens that had a population of perhaps uh, 200 to 300,000 people and a, a territory of about 1,000 square miles down to really small ones with a, um, uh, territories of just a few dozen uh, square miles um, uh, and a few thousand people. So the uh, Greek world in general is extremely um, uh, dispersed in terms of political authority. Uh, these are independent states or quasi-independent states. Uh, they're not just counties or um, sub-states uh, of some uh, uh, superior entity, Greece. They're all completely independent. So um, Greece is a uh, culture zone in antiquity, um, not a uh, politically um, centralized state. So uh, within those uh, a thousand, roughly thousand states, there is a quite a range of forms of political organization, uh, ranging from, uh, in some cases, tyranny or something like uh, a hereditary monarchy, uh, all the way through really quite robust forms of uh, a democracy, uh, forms of democracy that were certainly as democratic in terms of the extent of citizenship and uh, rule of law um, as anything we have um, in the Western world up through the latter part of the 19th century. Um, So uh, complete uh, male uh, franchise in Athens, for example, quite sophisticated systems um, of uh, of laws. But what does that mean precisely when you say uh, complete male franchise? What would be the range of of decisions that people would be making, voting on, et cetera, that, that, where that would come into play? And how, would, right. how did they take place? And pardon my ignorance. No, no, not at all. Uh, the uh, basic way, if we're thinking about Athens in the classical period, in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, uh, the uh, way that the Athenians as a democracy made their decisions uh, was that first a uh, representative body, uh, a council that was chosen by lottery for a one-year term, uh, would set an agenda, um, decide what it was important for the Indian state to make decisions about, uh, and they would then announce this agenda. Uh, several days later, there would be an assembly uh, of the Athenians uh, would be called in the center of the main city of Athens. And uh, at that point, any um, uh, Athenian citizen, that is free adult male native of Athens over age 18, um, could come to the assembly. Typically, about six or 8,000 of them did come to the assembly uh, to uh, debate what they should do. This ranged all the way from setting taxation levels to uh, war and peace um, to uh, a constitutional uh, amendment, um, 
uh, to sort of, uh, you know, sort of day-to-day business, um, uh, whether they should raise the stipend for the war orphans and so on. And, and how would that decision ultimately get made? Uh, the decision is made by majority uh, vote. Uh, the um, uh, lottery-chosen president of the assembly um, uh, gets in, up and says through a herald, uh, the council uh, says that what we should be discussing is, you know, the war orphan stipend. Uh, the recommendation of the council is that it stay the same. Um, uh, who of the Athenians has advice to give? And if it's some minor matter, the Athenians might say, we don't really have much to talk about. We think the council made a perfectly reasonable judgment. And so uh, they would pass it by acclamation. Um, but in some, in the cases of something really difficult, like war, uh, an alliance, and so on, there would be uh, a number of speeches uh, by people um, uh, from the floor, as it were, be identified by the uh, president and allowed to speak for as long as they were um, uh, relevant. They'd be shouted down by their fellow citizens if they weren't being relevant. Uh, and then uh, after um, those who wanted to speak had had a chance to speak, there was a uh, uh, a vote on the measure, um, and uh, the uh, uh, majority um, decided. And the vote would be among the people who were present? Well, among the people who were present, that's right. So if you cared about the agenda item, which was once again circulated in advance, uh, you would make it your business to be present, um, uh, and your vote then uh, was registered uh, with exactly the same weight of everybody else who was present. And who to take an issue of modern political science that's crucial, who controlled the agenda? So if the council said, let's keep it constant, and somebody else said, no, we ought to increase it 10%, no, someone said we ought to increase it 20%, no, we ought to decrease it 10%, said someone else, who, how was that vote structured? And Yeah, uh, so this is what we, we certainly know about the, uh, how the council's um, initial uh, uh, recommendation was made. Um, and what we know from the inscribed records of these things is that there were, in fact, amendments from the floor uh, which were accepted. Uh, the general assumption is that um, there are subsidiary votes, um, uh, basically that the, uh, uh, if, if the council um, is not comfortable with the amendment, um, if it is comfortable with the amendment, then it's a friendly amendment, and presumably we just go on and vote on the amended uh, uh, suggestion. If the council um, says no, then there's got to be a vote between the two um, possible uh, measures that are on the floor, so the council's and then the, and then the, then the potential amendment. Um, these uh, uh, intermediate votes, and in fact, most of the uh, votes in the uh, assembly um, uh, were by estimation of hands um, uh, in the air. So uh, uh, it's fairly rare that they actually have to take a vote by, um, by pebbles, uh, by, you know, by actual, uh, actual count. Um, they, in most cases, the majority was clear enough um, by uh, estimation of, the, of, uh, of hands, hands held up. No, uh, no hanging chads there. No hanging chads. Uh, and, not that we hear about anyway. And once and, again, the Athenians are um, quite... Uh, uh, very aware of their own system. Uh, there's a lot of uh, political theory written in Athens, and um, we don't hear objections about uh, uh, this uh, this kind of voting system. So it seemed to work uh, pretty well for pretty much everybody, um, at least insofar as our records are covering everybody. So of those thousand states, how much do we know? What proportion do we have a pretty good idea of what their governance Structure we was. have um, about uh, a quarter of them. We know we have some record um, of their uh, of their government structure between a quarter and a third. Uh, and what it looks like uh, is that um, uh, democracy is increasing between the fifth century BC and the fourth century. That's when we really have decent records at all. Uh, so it looks as if that the uh, by the time we're Getting near to the end of the fourth century BC, uh, the uh, something like half of the uh, Greek city-states were probably democracies, or not necessarily democracy in the full and robust Athenian sense, but democratic enough to be called a democracy by Aristotle and those who uh, 
uh, tried to categorize different states and different uh, regime types. But we're going to talk a lot about Athens in particular. So that, that's an example, obviously, where we know a great deal about it, at least uh, yes. relative to the others. So yeah, let's... yeah. The the Athenians just left a lot of records, um, and a great number of uh, 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 Greek writers uh, were resident in Athens. So we have we have much much fuller record from Athens than any place else. So let's talk about Telus, uh, T E L L U S in English. Uh, Telus of Athens, a, a citizen. Is Telus a common name? Uh, Telus is not a particularly common name. No, I mean we have other examples of people being called Telus, but it's uh, uh, it's rare enough um, uh, that it would be distinctive to a Greek audience. So you have an example in your paper of Herodotus talking about uh, Croesus, who was some say the richest person in the world at the time, which is where the expression "rich as Croesus" comes from, and yeah. and Solon, uh, S O L O N, who is. Uh, Solon was a was lawmaker, a, right? A yeah, yeah. He was a he was a, uh, a sage, um, uh-huh. uh, a, a a wise man um, who had actually served before his visit to uh, Croesus, the king of Lydia, um, as a lawgiver for the Athenians. There had been a, a crisis in Athens, um, uh, came close to civil war, and uh, Solon famously um, solved the immediate crisis and make some of the first uh, legal changes in Athens that eventually um, uh, develop into a into full democracy. And his name... But after he had finished that, he goes off on this trip and um, uh, decides that uh, he wants to see the world. And uh, so he fetches up in the court of, of, of Croesus of Lydia. And Solon is actually occasionally used, it's a little bit uh, uh, old-fashioned now, but it's occasionally used to mean a politician in headline writing because mm-hmm. Solon's shorter than politician. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's but, right. It is. It's one of the cases of these, uh, like like Kleenex or something, <laughs> which a private name gets uh, used for a whole category of things. Poor Solon. Um, but tell us the story of their uh, of the conversation between Croesus and Solon that Herodotus relates, because uh, yeah, it so, has some uh, nice uh, Herodotus to says that um, uh, Solon, in his travels, comes to the court of uh, of Croesus, and Croesus says, "Ah, you're Solon. You're." reputed to be very wise. Um, uh, uh, let me give you a tour of my um, uh, palace and my treasure rooms. And he does this. And having done that, uh, he says, well, now, Solon, I just have one question for you. Um, who is the happiest man in the world? Uh, and Herodotus sort of interjects here. Croesus expected him to say Croesus. No so, doubt. You know, there's no... Uh, it's a trick question. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, a very loaded question. Um, uh, and Solon says, well, um, uh, since you ask, uh, uh, the answer um, is uh, Telus of Athens, uh, my uh, compatriot. And Croesus is extremely taken aback by this. And he says, well, what's so happy about Telus? Uh, and so he says, well, Telus um, uh, was a man who uh, uh, lived in reasonable prosperity, um, uh, and his city was reasonably prosperous um, uh, during his lifetime. Uh, he had uh, children, and all of them uh, lived to adulthood, and all of them were fine, and all of them had children. Uh, and uh, it, uh, near the end of his life, um, he joined an expedition against invaders into Athenian territory, he helped to drive back the enemy. He was killed in battle, um, and he was buried um, at state uh, uh, expense um, with great honor. And he says that's the happiest life a person could live. And I think he then says, uh, who's the second happiest? And he names somebody else and yeah, keeps and going he, down the list. He doesn't get to Croesus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so Croesus says, all right, I'll find it well, but yes, tell me who's number two. And he says, oh, well, it's these other two guys, um, uh, these brothers named Cleobus and Biton from Argos. Um, and it turns out that they are super happy um, because uh, when the family uh, ox cart, uh, which was supposed to take their mother to a uh, religious festival, uh, wasn't able to do that because the oxen, for for some reason, held up in the fields. Cleobus and Biton uh, uh, lashed themselves to the ox cart. They drove, they dragged their mother to the to the to the festival. Everybody said, "Wow, that's fantastic! Look at these kids, strong as oxen." 
Um, uh, and the mother was so happy that she prays to the gods that they should have um, uh, the finest gift that they could, any mortal could hope for. They go off to a temple after that to, you know, give thanks. Um, they lie down in the temple and both um, uh, uh, they die um, uh, peacefully. And afterwards, the people of Argos are so impressed by this that they put up statues of them. Uh, so those are the second happiest people. Um, once again, a story of people who are clearly of moderate wealth, that is, they have oxen, um, uh, and they can. Uh, their mother is involved in festival activities and so on, but, but obviously not meant to be anything like people of the, of, the, of the wealth of Croesus. And in fact, are chosen presumably partly because they are nothing like Croesus. Exactly. So the, the, the whole point is uh, uh, that to really have a happy life, you have to know what happiness is, and also, as Solon says, you have to have completed a happy life, that your life is never can be judged happy until it has been completed. But his real point, I think, uh, the one that's important for us thinking about Greek economics, um, is that happiness is not to be judged by great masses of wealth alone. Uh, happiness is to be judged by an adequacy of wealth. He doesn't think you can be happy, at least none of these stories suggest that you can be happy in living in genuine dire poverty or in hunger or um, uh, you know, badly housed. But he does think that um, uh, the, the bottom line of having moderate wealth, which seems to be well above living at subsistence, um, uh, is the foundation for the kind of special happiness that having you know, all your children live and have all have your grandchildren be good and, all, and being buried with honors and so on, being honored after your death. Um, these are all special things that then build from uh, living a life um, uh, of moderate wealth in a, in a moderately wealthy community. Well, I, I wanted you to tell that story, and I, the rest of it's actually quite good as well as to what happens to Croesus at the end of his life, but we'll, we'll leave that for another podcast. But one of the reasons Great. I want you to tell it is that your paper has a line that I don't get to encounter very often, which is, Tellus of Athens did not shop at Walmart. So I, <laughs> I cherish that line. You're, you're making the point that, of course, Tellus, who's in some sense uh, – uh, John Doe of, of Athens, just a, mm -hmm. an average guy. Obviously, he's not as doesn't have the command over material goods and services that a modern American does. But for his day, may have been, even though he was just maybe typical, may have was been quite comfortable. And that's where you start with your analysis. That's right. That's so. So the question is: is if somebody who uh, can be imagined as having um, this kind of moderate wealth, um, uh, able to raise a number of children healthily, they are healthy too, able to have um, sort of agricultural resources that has you know oxen out in the fields and so on. That that's the uh, uh, that's the kind of uh, a baseline um, of living well beyond um, bare subsistence. Uh, that if that were generalized, it would suggest that uh, uh, Hellas, the ancient Greek world, was was quite a wealthy place indeed by by ancient standards. But of course, Hellas is only one data point, and and that's exactly. not your that's just a starting point. So. Give us uh, what evidence we have that that's actually that the average person in, in Athens was actually uh, quite comfortable and maybe was doing better as time passed, even if there was economic growth. Yes. So, so basically, we have uh, uh, three kinds of evidence that we can uh, look at. Um, uh, one is uh, a demographic. Um, so uh, we can measure at least roughly uh, how many people there were in the Greek world. Um, uh, at any given time, um, and then what their distribution was in terms of urban and uh, rural and so on. So the uh, cut to the chase, by the time we're down to the period of about 300 BC, what it appears is if we've got something like 7 to 10 million people in the uh, Greek world, um, about 3.5 million people in kind of core Greece would, would think about as roughly um, the modern nation state um, of Greece. We can then compare that number uh, to the earliest uh, uh, Greek census, excluding the various um, districts that have been um, come into the um, Greek state since the 19th century. 
But basically what we can show is, is that um, the ancient Greek population uh, was higher than um, the late 19th century population of Greece. Uh, it's pretty clear that the late 19th century population of Greece was living right about at agricultural carrying capacity. That is um, the amount of uh, uh, food that could be produced within the Greek um, territory would feed the number of people um, who lived in the Greek territory. Uh, and so uh, assuming that we've got our numbers right, and I think there's good reason to think these numbers are at least roughly correct, uh, the uh, ancient uh, Greek world um, lived uh, well beyond the carrying capacity of the territory uh, that the Greeks inhabited. And that means they were um, importing a lot of food from, uh, from outside. So all of this suggests that they weren't simply a baseline subsistence agricultural economy. Um, they were actually uh, uh, making things, goods and services, which are being um, exported so that food can be um, uh, imported. So that's the, that's the first sort of demographic story. The other part of the demographic story is the Greek world is highly urbanized. Um, uh, probably something like uh, 30% of Greeks uh, living in uh, towns of more than 5,000 people, which is just extremely urbanized, um, once again, by ancient standards. If we compare that to the uh, Roman Empire, which is sort of the standard, uh, highly urbanized um, uh, example from antiquity. Uh, it's probably about three times the urbanization rate um, of the of the Roman Empire. So, uh, uh, so the the very fact that there are a lot of Greeks. Um, uh, that they're highly urbanized, um, and then uh, uh, that they seem to be quite healthy. Uh, the the uh, bone studies that have been done um, on bones of Greeks from uh, graves from this period uh, suggest that, um, in, in fact, uh, over the um, period we're talking about, from, say, about 800 to 300 BC, uh, the health of the Greeks really increased which is striking because as the population becomes denser and as the population becomes more urban, we'd expect for um, higher levels of disease. This is typical of early modern uh, Europe, for example, where the cities are just death traps. And uh, as you get more um, urbanization, you get uh, a, a decline in um, uh, health. But it seems not to be happening in the Greek world. It seems that we're getting denser populations and also uh, uh, healthier uh, populations. So that's the that's the first part of it. That's the that's the demographic uh, piece. What about uh, the what about the direct evidence per capita consumption that you talk about in wealth? What do we know about that? Right. So for um, uh, if we're uh, to look at actually uh, uh, wealth um, and per capita wealth, uh, we uh, uh, have to look at indirect proxies. So uh, one of the best indirect proxies is the size of houses. And this is my colleague Ian Morris did uh, this terrific study, um, which he was able to show, just in brief, that Greek house size increases just dramatically in the same period from about 800 to 300 BC, so that by the time we're down to about 300, we're living, the Greeks are living um, in houses that are comparable to, in floor plan anyway, to uh, sort of suburban American houses. Uh, they're uh, several hundred um, uh, square meters. So you know, there's a really um, steep rise uh, rise in the in the size of houses. Um, uh, there's a comparable rise in the size um, various other kinds of goods that we can uh, uh, can be less accurately measured. Um, burial goods. Um, uh, goods from destroyed uh, houses and so on, household uh, household goods. Um, but any, at any rate, the house size, um, household goods, um, uh, along with everything else we can measure, um, for example, uh, the amount of um, uh, number of coins in circulation, all seems to be going up really dramatically um, in the uh, in this period. Uh, uh, and then the the the, the third. Uh, is that when we look at um, uh, wages uh, and we compare wages um, in the one place where we re really have 
wage information, and that's and that's Athens. Uh, the uh, wages in uh, ancient Athens are exceptionally high by ancient or any pre-modern standards, uh, well over uh, subsistence. In fact, uh, comparable to wages uh, in uh, Golden Age Holland and Holland in say the, the 16th to 17th century. So, I'm a little bit um, I'm a little bit worried about that coin data. Uh, the number of coins in circulation might only tell you mm-hmm. that there was inflation, which might mean that prices were high so that high wages didn't buy very much. Do we know anything about, when you say wages were high, do we know about the right. command of wages over goods and services, not just their absolute level? Yes, we do. Uh, uh, what um, uh, my, Another one of my colleagues, Walter Scheidel, uh, has done um, is uh, translated the wages for a number of pre-modern societies um, into uh, the so-called wheat wage. Uh, this is a, a standard uh, approach for looking at uh, uh, pre-modern um, incomes. But basically what you do is say how many liters of wheat um, can one day's uh, wage purchase, uh, and then you figure out, um, uh, you know, that those liters of wheat are to represent both um, food consumption and housing and, and so on. But it's a way to standardize um, across uh, different cultures. Uh, and so uh, it's pretty clear um, in uh, this wheat wage where the subsistence level is. Uh, and the standard uh, ancient pre-modern uh, wheat wage um, is quite close to subsistence. Um, so obviously you can't live below subsistence. You can't live just at subsistence. Um, uh, but um, as expected um, uh, from any kind of uh, extractive uh, economy, uh, most people will be living um, uh, just a little bit above subsistence. So we can then uh, work uh, at, uh, at multipliers um, and it looks uh, uh, from the Athenian uh, evidence that the uh, Athenians are uh, living at several times, about two and a half times um, above uh, subsistence, uh, which is once again just an absolute standout uh, when we uh, compare this to other um, uh, pre-modern societies. So when you say the Athenians, um, you're talking presumably about a fairly diverse group of people that we have wage rates for. Yeah, the, 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 the nice thing is, is that uh, the, the, the information that we have, um, this is especially for people doing uh, menial labor um, in construction projects. Uh, uh, the uh, wages um, are differentiated uh, in the accounts um, based on whether the individual is a, uh, a free citizen or a uh, foreign uh, resident um, or a slave. Uh, and in fact, the wages are all the same. So they differentiate between who was getting paid um, by their status, but uh, the differentiation um, uh, uh, is not, uh, we, we don't get um, uh, wage uh, differentials. So what it looks as if uh, we've got is the um, uh, wages for uh, pretty much the cross-section of, uh, of Athenian uh, population. Of, of at least a particular skill level. Yeah, at least at a particular skill level, right. So what we don't have is uh, the wages that, for example, an agricultural, uh, unskilled agricultural laborer would have. Um, on the other hand, these are not; these are people hauling um, uh, stone uh, and so on. So these are not um, uh, uh, sort of high-end artisans. So as an economist, I think my first thought would be to think about the division of labor. So mm-hmm. if if people's tasks are not very specialized. You know, if you're a jack of all trades, if you're a hauler, is your is right. your is your profession? Seems unlikely to me you're going to live two or three times above subsistence level. Um, yeah, and that's, well, that's that's the surprising. I mean, that's just the there's the there's the result. Um, uh, uh, that's you know we as I say we get that kind of thing for unskilled labor. Um, we get those kinds of similar sorts of uh, uh, wage levels um, in uh, England and in Holland uh, in 16th and, and 17th century. 
Um, so it's not unheard of in pre-modern societies, uh, but it's rare. Uh, so yes, that's that's exactly it. It's, it. It seems startlingly high. Once again, you can say you don't believe the evidence, um, but the evidence is as it is, and it all seems to be quite consistent with everything else we know about uh, uh, how much um, a citizen is paid to attend the assembly for one day, or uh, and so on. Um, oh, putting, so it's, it's it's pretty hard to get rid of the uh, the result. I think putting aside the hauler low skill wage, is there much evidence of of a a fairly fine division of labor anywhere else in the society in Athenian society. Yeah, yeah. No, there's 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 a lot of division of labor. Um, uh, this is something that's uh, in fact noticed by um, the Greeks uh, uh, and is commented on theoretically um, by the Greeks. If you read uh, Plato's uh, Republic um, in the when he's setting up this sort of idealized uh, society. He spends a surprising amount of time in the very beginning talking about how you've got to have division of labor um, and that you're going to have to have specialization in terms of um, some people growing food and other people you know, serving as blacksmiths and other people serving as military specialists and so on. So uh, there have been um, some studies just that have tried to collect the number of uh, names for particular occupations that we have um, in the Greek world. And there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, so there are, the, the Greeks were very aware of their society as being um, actually divided into uh, quite a lot of um, uh, particular kinds of skill specializations. The other thought I'd have is that when you have large wage differentials, say, between a, a low-skill worker in Athenian society and an agricultural worker somewhere nearby – Usually, you'd expect there to be migration into the highest-paying wage occupation, yeah. and I'm curious exactly. about and, and that's and, and so this I think is at least part of the um, explanation for the ongoing uh, uh, Greek um, use of slaves. So uh, this is, of course, one of the sort of moral blots um, on the uh, uh, Greek account is that it, it is a slave society, and they do import slaves. Um, uh, from outside the Greek world, as well as enslaving other Greeks as prisoners of war uh, on occasion. Uh, but I think that one of the reasons that they do, in fact, continue to um, uh, import slaves is because uh, they need more labor. Um, and so we actually do have labor inflows uh, into the Greek world from uh, outside uh, I was thinking more if I'm a farmer living in subsistence in one of the 999 other states uh, outside of Athens, and I hear I see, yes, and I hear well, about the good the, wages there, and I think, boy, I'd like to do that for twice what I make now. Are there barriers yeah, to that yeah, kind of? So, so here's the, the yeah the, the 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 problem is we don't have wage um, uh, evidence for these other Greek states. But uh, uh, Barry Weingast, uh, my colleague in political science, and I have been doing some preliminary studies just trying to model um, what the uh, likelihood uh, would be that uh, wages in the rest of the Greek world would at least begin, would, would approximate what we see in Athens. Because exactly as you suggest, it seems highly implausible that in Athens we'd have this, uh, uh, you know, relatively high uh, wages, and that it would be just um, uh, bare subsistence um, uh, in these nearby uh, states. Uh, after all, the Greek world migration is, uh, across um, state uh, uh, borders is actually quite easy. Um, uh, fairly low cultural costs. You all speak the same language, have roughly the same religious traditions, and so on. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, Athenians, anyway, and we believe other Greek states as well, um, are quite happy to have uh, foreign residents as long as they register and pay a, a low um, uh, a per capita tax. Well, do you think it was possible for a newcomer to? Sh I mean, in England, for example, it's quite difficult to show up in a town in the Middle Ages and and go work for somebody. They they were very. Um, they weren't very eager, worried about the poor laws and 
people. Yeah, um, yeah, they, we don't seem to get a lot of concern about this um, uh, in Athens, interestingly enough. Um, uh, in fact, uh, there is uh, uh, a, uh, a lovely little treatise um, by uh, Xenophon uh, about, which is sometimes translated as uh, ways and means or forms of income, uh, and he's basically trying to think about ways in which the Athenian state can increase its uh, its revenues. Uh, and he suggests that uh, the Athenians could be even more welcoming um, to foreign residents, especially for people who engaged in, in trade, uh, and suggests various ways that this could this could happen. And what we what's interesting is, is it looks as if the Athenians actually are passing laws. Um, uh, in this period, in the middle of the fourth century BC, to in fact encourage uh, more people to come uh, into Athens, to uh, especially traders. Um, so this may not uh, affect the uh, uh, these unskilled uh, laborers as much. Do we know anything about about trade and trade levels? So, for example, if uh, obviously there was some trade between Athens and other Greek cities, how much trade was there between Athens and other? countries yeah yeah it's it's very hard to to measure it um, what we do have is some uh, measures for the um, grain trade between Athens and uh, the area that they would, would now call the Ukraine especially um, south uh, some parts of South Russia uh, so the uh, we know that there's a there's a lot of um, uh, a grain uh, being imported into Athens at least in many years. There may be some years in which the Athenians have good enough crops locally that they don't need to import a lot of grain. But I tend to think they're importing a great deal of grain every year. Uh, and I think that that's also typical of other Greek states. That's that demographic evidence we were, we were talking about. What do you think they're exporting? Uh, so we know some of the things they're exporting. Um, uh, they are uh, exporting um, uh, a pottery Olive oil, wine. Um, uh, they're exporting um, uh, expert warriors. Uh, there's a lot of mercenarism uh, in this world. Uh, they're exporting other kinds of uh, highly skilled experts. We hear about uh, doctors and so on. And these are you know people who are Greeks who are working um, outside of the Greek world. Uh, uh, architects. Um, uh, it's I tend to think that there's a lot of export in textiles. Um, unfortunately, textiles don't leave yeah. any archaeological records, so that's very Problem. hard to hard to hard to trace. Um, there's also probably uh, a lot of export of fine manufactured goods um, uh, in uh, uh, bronze and uh, silver, but once again, those tend not to leave traces because uh, uh, they are unless unless they're found in shipwrecks. Um, uh, they tend to get uh, bronze and silver tend to get uh, melted down and reappropriated, unlike stone and pottery. So I should mention, I should mention earlier, the, the paper we're discussing is actually was published as your presidential address in 2010 of Transactions of the American Philological Association. And philology is um, the mix of history, linguistics, and classics. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The uh, philology was sort of in some ways the, the old way of talking about the field of classics. It means you know, love of language or love of words, but it now really covers a much wider um, range. That's exactly right. History, um, uh, archaeology, um, uh, literature, uh, and language. Culture, I guess, generally. Yeah, culture, broadly speaking. So if we take this as given, which of course is is... It's hard to know with much precision, but we have some evidence that, that Greece was prosperous in this period. What do you think mm -hmm. explains their prosperity relative to their neighbors? Right. Well, so this is the, the, the big question. And of course, um, uh, these can only be, be hypotheses, but I think that we can at least um, uh, come up with uh, some reasonable hypotheses. And so I would uh, identify two major areas uh, one is um, uh, relatively um, egalitarian institutions, uh, that is, uh, relatively fair institutions that allow um, individuals to engage in 
exchange of various sorts um, on a relatively equitable um, level. Uh, and so this has uh, these the, the egalitarian institutions, and this doesn't, when I'm saying this, I don't mean redistribution all the way down. I mean, you know, basic fairness in terms of uh, opportunity. Uh, so uh, this has two results. Um, one, um, it lowers transaction costs because when people believe that when they have a dispute with somebody with whom they're engaged in an exchange, that the dispute will be resolved fairly, rather than you know, the nobleman will always win and the you know, villain will always lose. Uh, so it lowers transaction costs. It increases um, uh, the potential then for um, uh, profitable uh, exchanges. Uh, and it also increases uh, invest in, investment in, in human capital. Uh, because uh, if I don't fear that the proceeds of my investment in myself are going to be expropriated by somebody else, some powerful nobleman, for example, who's going to force me into servitude, um, then I'm willing to uh, engage in more investment um, and therefore willing to um, do the kind of training that leads to this sort of um, extensive specialization that we were talking about a little bit earlier. How about property but, rights generally? How secure were they? If, if I made a bigger house, which we've been talking about, right. uh, what's my worry that someone come, will come along and just take it from me? Uh, you're remarkably secure um, uh, in, uh, in your property, uh, at least in the states we know most about. Now, if you have the bad luck to be in a state that is run by a tyrant, it's another story. Although tyranny really declines in the Greek world, and I think partly because tyrannies are not very efficient compared to these more citizen-centered uh, uh, societies like, like Athens. Uh, but if you're in uh, a democracy like Athens, um, uh, you might think that there was a, uh, uh, always the danger that the majority would use its majoritarian power simply to expropriate the goods of the rich. But this isn't done. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Athenian magistrates, uh, when they took their uh, oath of office, they had to swear to leave property in the hands of those who currently possess it. Uh, clearly, the Athenian state was very aware of the importance of uh, relatively secure property rights if you're going to have um, social stability and uh, the possibility of, of economic improvement. And that's clearly a rarity in the, in the ancient world. So when we talk about people like uh, Croesus or Darius, and I have to say I've spent my whole life pronouncing it Darius, so I'm very happy, and I'm sure Darius... Ah, don't worry about it. It's well, nothing like the, the Persians would have pronounced it uh, entirely differently. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought maybe I'd been offending him all this time. But uh, these successful uh, wealth amassers were not... Um, this, were not great uh, innovators or entrepreneurs. They were tyrants. Presumably, they acquired much, if not all, of their wealth through the power of force. Is that true, or do we know? Yeah, I think that, that roughly is true. Um, uh, certainly, uh, it's not just brute force always. Um, uh, in some cases, it's uh, what you might call ideological force. So if I'm an Egyptian because I believe the Pharaoh is a god and I believe that my chances in the afterlife depend on that. I may be willing to turn over a great deal of my you know, produce to him. Sure. On the other hand, I'm not going to invest a lot in myself. I'm just going to do what my ancestors had done over and over, turn it over to him. In other cases, we've got very good evidence, for example, for the Persian Empire that it is just raw force that the king and the people immediately associate with him, uh, associated with him just go out and take stuff from people. Um, uh, and, do, and so that uh, property rights seem not to be secure um, in, these, in these other societies. And I think that's some part of the reason for the differential, for the reason that the Greeks seem to be doing so surprisingly well. So you talk about the rule of law and access to the economic system. Anything else you want to add for the... Possible. Well, I think, I think, yes, I think this, the second really big reason is that we get uh, uh, a constant, uh, especially institutional innovation um, in the Greek world. It's a, it's a 
quite remarkable that um, uh, the level of uh, ongoing uh, institutional and to some degree technological, but especially institutional innovation. Uh, and I think that part of the reason for this um, uh, is that uh, there is a high level of competition between these uh, many hundreds of city-states. Uh, and there's also quite um, uh, easy technology or institutional technology transfer across city-states because you have a shared language, shared culture uh, generally. So you've got all of this competition to try to um, get a you know, leg up on your uh, rival neighbor state um, and the possibility of borrowing an institutional innovation that is working out pretty well in that neighboring state is uh, really very high. So we can see things like um, uh, the spread of coinage um, early on. Coinage is only invented twice in world history, once in the Greek Lydian world and once in China. Um, and we just see that the, in, within 50 years, you know, um, uh, the use of coinage just sweeps across the Greek world. Very efficient way to do business, really lowers transaction costs. Um, and I think it's uh, just a, an example of an institutional innovation um, that is then uh, uh, spread uh, quickly across the, the entirety of the, of the ecology. And ditto for that matter, um, democracy. I think this is why uh, forms of democracy increase over time in the Greek world, simply because it was working pretty well. Um, it was uh, uh, helping to uh, increase um, effective mobilization, um, ultimately lowering tensions uh, between haves and you know, so the, the wealthier and the, and the, and the, and the less wealthy um, in the society. Uh, and uh, uh, generally um, uh, proving to be more effective both on the military and on the economic side um, uh, than the um, competitor regime types. But that innovation of democracy uh, didn't spread very much beyond Greece. And, no, it's and, very and hard very to – I mean you basically have to buy into a lot of cultural presuppositions, for example, just the possibility of equality um, uh, among native males um, or the uh, value of liberty as free expression or, or free association. But just the very notion that those things are possible or, or valuable is really rare um, in human history. And of course, it's not advantageous um, if you've got a very narrow, small, entrenched elite um, uh, efficiently extracting a very small but um, uh, a spread over a lot of people, um, uh, you know, a surplus. So if, you, if, I can, if I can extract just, you know, a little bit above uh, a subsistence from a great number of people, and there are only a few of us who are doing it, and we've got this system locked in. Um, somebody comes and says, hey, the Greeks are doing this democracy thing. <laughs> I'll do my best to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. And we had the podcast we've done with uh, Bruce Buena de Mesquita touch on this issue, yeah. where um, even though, and also with uh, Darren Asimoglu, the, the mm-hmm. You'd think you'd want to make the pie as big as possible and take a big slice of it, but of course you can't always get a big slice of a big pie. So you might be willing to settle for a a, sure. a, a, a smaller pie. Uh, exactly, you know. as long as you're getting your big piece. If there's you know if there's a dozen families who are dividing a small pie, um, you know they're going to be uh, still doing pretty well. If there's ten thousand families dividing a much bigger pie, you know the slices are smaller. Yeah. If I work it out, I'm going to say I'll stick with the dozen of us. Thank you very much. Plus change is risky. Um, yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, um, that's, that's, that's so how, how, how has your, your thesis been received by other scholars? Are there people with a vested interest in arguing that Greece is poor and Greece was poor and they're pushing back and arguing your data wrong and your evidence is misleading? Yeah, and, this is, there's, there's, a, there's a certain amount of to and fro at this point. Um, uh, the uh, wealthy Hellas thesis has been uh, received uh, uh, well, especially by people interested in, in economics, people actually trained in economics. Uh, uh, there are some uh, uh, people studying the Greek world who resist the thesis or, or have pushed back against it, 
Um, I tend to think that they're not really, at least I haven't seen yet, any detailed arguments that say that the evidence is wrong or the interpretation is, is, is uh, wrong. The um, preference, I think, at this point is simply to say, uh, well, um, after all, Greece was a pre-modern society, and pre-modern societies are all pretty much alike, and therefore, you know, we prefer to believe that there's no reason to, that we, we just don't believe the evidence because um, it can't really be true uh, because of the, you know, premise that all pre-modern societies are pretty much alike. And on the other hand, there's sort of a, a, uh, a nostalgic vision of, uh, of the Greeks as being these noble, you know, impoverished folks um, uh, who uh, uh, are to be revered um, uh, because they uh, rejected materiality and um, uh, embraced um, uh, spiritual lives and uh, on the one hand, democracy, on the other hand, um, truth and beauty and so on. Uh, and so uh, those people don't want to think of the Greeks as being um, engaged in this kind of sordid, uh, uh, you know, crass uh, material. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, really, actually, if, we're, if we, we care about the, you know, what some people call the Greek miracle, you know, this explosion of culture, um, uh, invention of uh, various um, uh, cultural forms, tragedy, history, um, uh, philosophy uh, and so on, then we really should be interested in, in its material basis. Uh, and material basis, I think, is the one that I've tried to I've tried to describe. Yeah, well, it seems to me, as an economist thinking about this, that the um, this romantic view that the Greeks sat around on the ground all day talking about the meaning of life and truth and the essence yeah. of things. If anything points to their wealth, um, most people don't have time in those years to sit around on the ground yeah. and to do sculpture no, and, exactly. I mean, and to hang out in think. political gatherings and chit-chat about the latest agenda item. To me, that suggests that they had leisure time, which is that's perhaps the greatest evidence of high consumption. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly correct. Um, uh, the, uh, the other sort of pushback comes from uh, uh, people um, who uh, want to say that uh, the uh, Greek world um, is an example, which is certainly true, of a, of a slave society, um, and want to say that slave societies can never have economic growth; that they're they're doomed to uh, a kind of a, a stagnation um, because they refuse to innovate, and you won't get any um, uh, investment in human capital, and so on. But I think this is just you know it's it's in some ways a moral argument um, uh, rather than, the, than an economic argument. I quite agree with the moral argument. Slavery is monstrous. But on the other hand, um, uh, I don't think that it is evidence for um, uh, stagnation in and of itself. But surely some people have argued that your data is representing the, ex the exploitation of the slaves. Is that not – yeah, that's heard. right. So that's this is one of the one of the questions is is uh, uh, is this um, uh, simply a uh, uh, an ex uh, a case of um, uh, of exploitation? And the you know the response to that is uh, it certainly there certainly is exploitation of, of slave labor in the in the Greek world, although perhaps less ferocious exploitation based on this. Um, uh, the evidence of the Athenian wages, in which the slaves are receiving the same wages as, as free people, um, uh, but on the you know I think the 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 efficient the exploitation argument would have to suggest that somehow the Greeks were more exploitative than other peoples in the ancient world uh, who used slaves. I just don't find much exam evidence for that. I mean, that, that, that somehow they managed to extract more um, uh, surplus uh, from uh, slave labor than uh, other peoples. And it's very hard for me to model how you do that, um, uh, how you actually get uh, uh, more surplus out of um, uh, what is largely you know, semi-skilled or unskilled uh, slave labor than um, than, than, than other societies, but maybe I'm just missing something. Do we know anything about how widespread slaveholding was at the time and what proportion of the workforce was slaves? 
Yeah, slaves? this is this is much debated. Um, the problem is is that uh, uh, the there are no records um, that are meaningful uh, for this, uh, and uh, there really can't be because clearly the Greeks never knew how many slaves they had. There's, there's no registry of slaves. There was a registry of um, uh, foreign. Uh, 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 nationals, um, because they paid a tax, but 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 slaves were were, were not registered. So the the best guess um, uh, is that if we look at Athens, um, that something like a quarter to a third of the population might have been slave, um, which is very high percentage. Um, uh, but that's just really a that, that's really a guess. And do we know anything about how they were? Treated what rights they had, if any, because that would also be relevant. We hear the word slave. We often have a certain we Americans tend to think of the American South. Uh, right. Is is that the right model? No, it's not. I mean, it's not. It's not a race based slavery at all. Um, I meant in terms of property and ability to to tell them what to do when. I mean, and, right, right. So it is. It is. It is chattel slavery in which the um uh, slave is treated as property and therefore can be uh, uh bought and sold so it's not um there are forms of serfdom in the greek world but a lot of it is straight up chattel slavery but there are at least once again in athens where our best evidence comes from there are actually laws which govern um uh treatment of slaves uh so there's a law against um uh deliberate insult for example uh that specifically says you may not insult anyone, um, either male or female, adult or child, uh, free or slave. Uh, we know that at least some Athenian slaves uh, didn't live with their masters. They actually had their own residences. They lived um, uh, on their own and simply paid part of their income um, to their master and uh, we know there was also uh, a substantial um, manumission um, of slaves. You could buy out your, your your bondage, as it were, if you were one of these people, especially living off um, uh, on your own. So it seems to be, in some ways, sort of less horrific uh, than the uh, uh, kind of slavery we associate with the American South. But you know, I wouldn't want to, in any way, lessen the Sort of moral horror of uh, of slavery. I mean, clearly it was it was an undesirable condition, and the Greeks never kidded themselves about that. Finally, um, talk about what new evidence or uh, data might come to light that could settle some of these issues. I mean, you work in a strange field to an economist, <clears throat> if I may say so, right? You don't have no, a lot true. of of census data or. CPS data or BLS data, you're stuck with what gets unearthed, and that's a random, not random, but it's an erratic yeah. process. So as a scholar in this area, what do you hope for, and, and what do you think might be, in your dreams, what might come forward to help understand these issues better? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's always the hope for more uh, good archaeological evidence. Um, and there is every year more archaeological evidence. Uh, and archaeologists are increasingly focused on quantification um, instead of just finding a beautiful temple Stuff. and putting it back together and bringing in the tourists. Uh, they're now actually uh, realizing that counting um, uh, the number of uh, uh, stamped uh, amphora handles, um, uh, the amphora were uh, the trade vessels, and the stamps uh, indicated place of locate, you know, place of origin of the of, of the goods. Uh, so we're getting, you know, increasingly large bodies of uh, of data, and of course the. Um, techniques for analyzing very large bodies of data are getting more sophisticated all the time. We all can always hope for new um, documents, uh, the, uh, uh, especially from Athens. The Athenians were sort of document mad. And happily, they uh, like to carve a lot of records um, on stone uh, tablets, and those got lost and uh, are found again by archaeologists. Uh, so those uh, a certain number of new um, uh, inscriptions on stone, um, often with very important uh, data for us, come up uh, every year and are carefully uh, recorded and analyzed by uh, by archaeologists. Uh, 
one area that I think is really going to be important um, uh, uh, going forward is better and better um, uh, uh, osteology um, uh, data on uh, or analysis of uh, bone remains. Uh, so uh, it's, we can measure more precisely uh, longevity, um, health, uh, figuring out what people actually died of at what age. Um, if we can model the uh, demography of ancient populations, uh, both Greek and non-Greek populations, we will be able to do much better um, comparative uh, analysis um, uh, of things that are at least really very good proxies for um, uh, economic growth over time. My guest today has been Josh Ober. Josh, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much, Russ. It's been a pleasure talking with you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.